welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. I know it's been a while, but I've got another special episode for you all. In this special episode, I speak with Bashir Ghazi Alam. Bashir is a well-respected attorney in San Diego, practicing in the areas of immigration, federal actions against the U.S. government, and Defense-Based Act claims, which I believe are like workers' compensation claims against the U.S. government for actions that arise out of military bases at home and abroad. I say I believe because, unfortunately, we didn't get to talk about it, and that's my fault. See, I wanted to speak to Bashir most of all because he is from Afghanistan and came to the U.S. as a refugee at 13 years old in the 1980s. Many of his clients are now from Afghanistan or are trapped there, and he knows more about what's going on than anyone I know. While running a law practice in the early 2000s, Bashir somehow found time to serve as a legal consultant with the Afghanistan Judicial Reform Commission, which was then charged with helping draft Afghanistan's post-Taliban constitution, and later with the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue based in Geneva to work on a special report relating to the status of rule of law and justice reform in Afghanistan. He's advised the former Afghan government, the U.S. Department of State, the list goes on. Couldn't think of a better person to talk to about Afghanistan, so I talked to Bashir. And we talked a lot. I hope you enjoy and learn something, because I certainly did. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Immigration Review. It's been a while since we had a special episode, and I think this is a really important special episode. And, you know, from the onset, I'm going to just say, because I so often forget to say it, it is currently October 10th, Sunday evening. And that's when we are recording this episode. And I'm speaking with Bashir Ghazi Alam, who is an attorney in San Diego. Bashir has been an attorney for about 20 years. He is an immigration attorney, and he also does Defense-Based Act Claims, a area of law that I know nothing about that we're going to get into during this interview. Bashir is a well-established attorney in San Diego and nationwide. 
in immigration, I know him from, of course, the Facebook groups and everyone's active in the community. But I know that Bashir is very well respected in San Diego and throughout the country and that he also brings federal claims, usually in D.C. against the U.S. government and that he's been fighting for immigrants for 20 years. Bashir is himself an immigrant coming to the United States as a refugee at 13 from Afghanistan. And I wanted to talk to Bashir about Afghanistan because, at least in my small circle of such people, he is the person who knows the most about what is currently happening in Afghanistan and what immigration attorneys and non-immigration attorneys can do for the Afghan diaspora and individuals in Afghanistan. So, Bashir, thank you so much for speaking with me this evening, and I hope you're well. Well, thank you, Kevin. Uh, I'm glad to be here. I look forward to speaking to you. And Bashir, you and I, we've actually never met. We've seen each other in the Facebook groups. We've talked to each other. Um, we know of each other, but we've never actually met in person. One of the weird features of COVID, I suppose, and technology. So it's, it's a pleasure to meet you, if over Zoom. Well, yeah, these days, uh, you, you can know somebody in person for 20 years uh, and at the same time, you can know somebody very briefly, virtually, and you have a very closer relationship. You feel like you know that latter person much better than the former. So it's all about quality, not quantity or format or style or anything like that. So thank you for being on the show. And, you know, I say all of that for all the listeners, because I'm going to be learning a lot of the things that we're talking about today for the first time as well with everybody else. And so I'm very interested and I'm happy that you came on to speak. So to start off and to just jump right into it, can you give us a bit about your background, your personal story and all of that? Well, sure. My personal story pretty much starts with my name. And uh, my, my last name was created by my father and his brothers in the 1960s when Afghans who typically do not have last names. They only go by first names. And they uh, usually adopt last names when they need to. And generally, that is because when they have to emigrate outside of the United States and they have to apply for a passport. Even previously in passports, they, they didn't really contain the last names. But that's a whole long story. So my, my, they, my, they sat down and they uh, thought about what kind of name they should, last name they should adopt. And... Uh, Generally, uh, Afghans will look at their father's name and their grandfather's name. And very generally, they will uh, take their grandfather's name. So they decided not to do that uh, for the reason that they wanted to have my great, my grandfather's grandfather's brother's name, who was a hero uh, in the 1860s and 1870s back then, in the late 1800s, in the war against the British. So he was a Ghazi. Ghazi means it's an Arabic term that means a war hero. Back then, it was a very prestigious uh, title in Afghanistan. So he, he, he was a Ghazi and he was a, a, our whole family is kind of honored and proud of him. So my last name is derived from him. Just hearing all of that just now, which is, of course, just the introduction, how your name goes back to the 1860s because you have a someone in your family, very important. It just, to me, it indicates the uphill battle America might have had in interacting with Afghanistan, myself, and I think most most people I know in America, they, they wouldn't know a thing about their ancestors from the 1860s. I have no idea about any of them. And in your family, it was it's central to your name. 
Well, uh, yeah, because then my family became exiled after that, like a decade later. Alam ended up being killed by the then king, the Iron Amir of Afghanistan, because for the mere reason that Alam had made friends with the king's cousin, who was also a later vying for the power for the throne of Afghanistan. And later, because of the friendship that he had developed, he went and in a last ditch effort in order to go save his army that was cornered in uh, uh, in somewhere in Afghanistan on the verge of losing the battle against this Iron Amir who ended up ruling Afghanistan for over 20 years later. His friend, the king's cousin, was defeated because Afghanistan is unfortunately is very... It has a very rich and very dramatic uh, history that goes back centuries. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I feel privileged that uh, my family, uh, I come from a family line who were basically educated, you know, that goes back not decades and centuries where they, they, they were always educated. And as a matter of fact, uh, my grandfather, who ended up, dying of a heart attack when my dad was only three or four years old back back in the 1930s uh, they had returned from India and they he was born in India so there was a two generations of my family that was actually born in back then India uh, which is now Pakistan uh, Lahore Pakistan because Pakistan didn't exist back then Mm -hmm. Pakistan was only formed later. So so there's a lot of details and history in my family, which kind of gives me the drive all the time to kind of, you know, live up uh, to everything that my father has done, my his father has done in the, in the past and everything that they have strived for. You know, I feel privileged that uh, I always had the opportunity living in America to get to where I am. I, we don't, I don't know where I'm going to end up, but <laughs> so far where I've, uh, where, where I've come, uh, I, I, I really think that I, I give the most credit to all the opportunities that this country has provided to me all the time. And so actually, just to summarize, before, before we get to it, if I'm understanding the story correctly, your ancestor, your grand, your great, 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 great grandfather's brother was a war hero against the British in the 1860s, who then aligns himself with the brother of a king. Presumably after the British are defeated? Yeah, because they, they had, uh, you know, that brother of the king was also a war hero. And he, he had a very big instrumental role in actually driving the British out. So, you know, um, Afghanistan has been ruled by the Pashtun tribe, of which I'm also a, a member of that tribe. And the, the majority of the Taliban are also Pashtuns. Uh, so it, it, Afghanistan has had a dy- dynastic family uh, uh, ruler, ruling family for uh, decades and decades. And a lot of times, the uh, transfer of power has not been as peaceful as, as the, the, the most recent transfer of power that we had in, in America right. in, in, in January. Well, right. <laughs> but but were, so I, were the British kicked out of Afghanistan for good? I just seem to recall Churchill really always had being connected to Afghanistan. And were, were the British, weren't the British in Afghanistan until throughout World War II, or is that not correct? No, the British were finally, uh, Afghanistan uh, uh, declared independence against Britain in 1919. Um, so uh, that 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 was uh, the British were 
uh, out by then, but uh, there was there were three Afghan-British wars actually. Uh, but the, the, but Afghanistan had already defeated the British way long before that. There were attempts of occupation at the very least. It only lasted only a few weeks or something, but it didn't last 20 years for sure. Right. And to say something that's obvious for you and maybe for me, but not necessarily for everyone, most Taliban are Pashtuns, but most Pashtuns are not Taliban. Exactly. That, thank you for making that clarification and distinction for me. Right. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, about 50% of Afghanistan's population is made up of Pashtun, which is a huge because the rest of our very small minorities, you would be amazed at how ethnically diverse Afghanistan is. And you would be amazed at how uh, all these ethnic groups have kind of really spread out all the through fabrics of the society of Afghanistan, how they have intermarried. And it's very complex. And uh, as a matter of fact, you know, the, the, the Taliban started making their advances from the northern part of Afghanistan. And they had a very strong hold on the northern of Afghanistan, even though the northern of Afghanistan is mostly non-Pashtun uh, majorities. Uh, so, uh, so, but, but, but in, in any event, um, uh, there are other minority groups and uh, yes, there are talks all, all the time. There's ugly phases of ethnic uh, atrocities committed by rulers and everybody, but the overwhelming majority of the recent history of Afghanistan all these ethnic groups have been really been able to amazingly uh, live in very good peace and harmony with each other, despite yeah. a, a lot of their foreign influences and things like that. So, uh, so basically, uh, you know, I just the, my point is that Afghanistan is a really very di- diverse country, and every province, every city has its own diverse neighborhoods, diverse villages, districts. Everything it's, it's amazing. Um, yeah, it's very incredible. It's very complex. That's why we lost. I mean, that's why America lost the war is because, uh, number one, America didn't really understand Afghanistan. Uh, oh. Number two, uh, it was all profit driven. Uh, you, you mentioned I've been a lawyer for 20 years and I've been serving the Afghan community for 20 years, but I've actually been uh, serving the immigrant community for longer than that. But uh, in, out of the 20 years that I've been a lawyer, I also had the opportunity to go back to Afghanistan. Uh, just opportunities rose one after the other after September 11th happened. You know mm-hmm. how they say that uh, it, within every tragedy, there's always opportunities, you know. So yeah. out of every tragedy, especially for me, for example, when the, the Soviets, when the, the, uh, the, the coup happened, the communist coup happened in 1978, I was seven years old. Uh, I, w- I lived in Kabul. I lived in a very peaceful Afghanistan. There were uh, foreigners. There were fo- more uh, Americans living in my neighborhood uh, that that uh, in the, the block of the houses that I uh, passed through from my house uh, to go to my elementary school. I saw more Amer- mainly Americans and other Europeans living in those neighborhoods in the 1970s right. and I saw Afghans. It was amazing, you know. <laughs> Uh, so and then all of a sudden, abruptly, everything changed. The coup happened. Everybody started taking off. The Americans were leaving back then because the Americans loved Afghanistan. Even back then, in the 1960s, it was a prime destination for hippies and all of that. Uh, so, so yeah, I remember that, and I, I knew at that time when that uh, happened, that jets went up in the sk- skies, and everybody knew that a coup happened. 
and uh, and then the next morning we were invited to go to the the presidential palace where we I was able to personally see the blood of the former uh, ruler of Afghanistan, President Dawood Khan. Uh, uh, he, he was killed with all of his family. I, I was able to see the flesh of the family still fresh on the in the garden of the presidential palace, just being seven years old. All of a sudden, just the whole world, my entire life at that point took a very different turn. Why were you brought to the presidential palace at seven years old? Or is it all of the Afghan and Yeah, Afghan we were all, and... everybody was all excited that, you know, that there's a new uh, era and the, the, the president had been prime minister, whatever his title was, uh, was has been uh, killed and the new uh, communist democratic party of Afghanistan has taken over and we're going to work for workers' rights. We're going to fight for workers. We're going to fight for the rights of the minorities. We're going to take away the land of all the feudals. We're going to redistribute all the land and we're going to have a communistic country, blah, 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 and all of that. So the, all of the communism started happening. Uh, so I, I was just, I just, I, I went with my mom and with my, the rest of my family in order to go check out, you know, the new, t- you know, it was everybody just wanted to go see and, and and check out everything for themselves because at that moment, everybody knew that this is the, the turning moment. And so what's it like to live under communist Afghanistan in the 19, late 70s and the throughout the 1980s? Uh, it was just, um, it, it just, you know, it, it's kind of like in entering a, a, a long horror nightmare Um uh, after that, I started seeing, uh, you know, it, war, the war began, the resistance began. Uh, people went up in their roofs and they started chanting Allah Akbar and, you know, the protests against the Russians. And the marches began. My, our, our favorite uh, singers started becoming assassinated. Uh, our uh, intellectuals, uh, became, our relatives started becoming arrested. My father was arrested. My uncle was arrested. My entire family was arrested. Why were they arrested? Uh, well, because you know they 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 didn't they, they, they didn't like communism. Oh, well, I mean, this is a long story. Uh, my my dad, he was a doctor, but uh, he he was also uh, a, a national. He 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 was a national figure, you know, and he had mm-hmm. a lot of friends. He had come to the. To, to America in the 1960s. He, he got his master's in medicine um, in, in Texas. Uh, he was just a really good educated guy. And he um, uh, then end up, ended up becoming, um, just was chosen by his peers as uh, one of their leaders, as a writer's mm-hmm. union of Afghanistan. They were the, the group that the alternative to that Mujahideen. Uh, it's a long story, you know, so uh, it, it's, it, I, I don't want to really go on a, I don't want to go on a tangent, but understood, but it's, it's yeah. interesting stuff. And, <laughs> and so I'll do my, you know, my, I, my favorite uncle actually just disappeared. Uh, you know, he was the kindest, uh, relative that I had. And I never forget that, uh, he, he disappeared. Uh, I think he joined the resistance movement, the Mujahideen at that advanced time. And then they went to his village and they hunted him down and they mm. killed a whole bunch of his other relatives and they took him and he disappeared. And I remember for months and months we were looking for him. So a lot of tragic stories, you know, so at the hands of the communists at this yeah, time. Exactly. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm by no means an Afghan, a scholar in Afghanistan. I guess what I'm hearing is that, you know, from the beginning, there's a communist takeover of Afghanistan of a relatively secular nation with obviously an Islamic culture as well. But 
from the get-go, the resistance does have an Islamic nature to it. I am very aware that the Taliban comes much later and is trained in part with the backing of the United States and in schools in Pakistan. But from the get-go, the resistance is not Taliban, but the resistance does have an Islamic nature. Is that about yeah, well, right? Yeah, that, that was, um, maybe I should jump right into it because this is kind of history. My my dad had close ties with the United States from the 1960s. And um, he, uh, even now I'm friends with him, the friends that he had, American friends that are professors and, you know, uh, really good members of the here in, in America. So uh, he um, also joined the resistance movement. He, and I mean, he, he didn't have a choice. He, he, uh, uh, he, he wanted to be a doctor. He wanted to continue his profession, which he was very good at. But he ended up uh, for five years filling two roles. One is to um, uh, fight, uh, advocate uh, on behalf of, uh, he worked with the doctors with border, uh, without borders and uh, a lot of other agencies. Um, and uh, uh, so basically, uh, he uh, went back and forth over the border. He risked his life every day, every, every, every day. Uh, every year he went back and forth. Uh, he had a motorcycle where he took medicine uh, over from Pakistan to uh, Afghanistan and he treated the Mujahideen, uh, the, the ones that were shot, that were the ones that were dying. And uh, he had saved uh, tons of uh, Mujahideen, but that wasn't his main mission. His main mission was to go, <clears throat> even despite all the war uh, in Afghanistan back in the late 70s and early 80s, to go and work as a doctor. He was a very passionate doctor. He had a clinic in uh, in Loga province, uh, and uh, in the, in, the, in that clinic, uh, every morning there formed a, a line of hundreds of people uh, where who wanted to go see him and get medicine from him and to get checked out and everything. So he was a very successful doctor, and at the same time, he also helped the mujahideen. He, uh, the mujahideen took him uh, in order to go to the battlefield and to go to the, treat the f- soldiers. And a lot of times he barely escaped uh, attacks on himself by the uh, Russians and the Afghan government and all of those. So while he was doing all of this, we lived, uh, his kids lived in Kabul. We went to school uh, in, in Kabul, Afghanistan in the early 80s uh, while he was doing that. So I was away from my dad. Uh, I grew up away. Uh, my dad was away all the time, you know, so that's why I really enjoy my time with my kids now because I feel so privileged that, you know, I even have the time to be with them every day. And then he ended up uh, being stepping on the toes of the other Mujahideen uh, who ended up trying to recruit him to come to, the, to, to join their movement. And he refused to do that. And then there was one incident where one of the commanders came to his clinic and uh, jumped the line in front of everybody. And he simply like had a headache or something like that. And he demanded to be, to seek treatment uh, right away. And my dad told him, no, you have to go in the back of the line. That's the kind of a person my dad was, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so he told them to go back into the back of the line uh, and uh, he didn't treat him. Uh, so they obviously, when he closed up the clinic, they they were waiting for him. They kidnapped him. He was gone for like two days. I I found out about this like after the fact. <laughs> so so you can imagine that he being kidnapped and how he was able to how other people that knew my dad were able to talk his kidnappers out of just releasing him without even hurting him. Uh, so uh, so th- that's the clout that my dad really had in Afghanistan. And then later on. Uh, he was invited to come to the United States. He testified in front of Congress in 1983 
uh, and uh, he gave a very extensive testimony regarding what's going on in Afghanistan and uh, what the Russians are doing in Afghanistan, all the atrocities that they're committing. It's all documented. Um, and uh, so, so my dad was this guy, this doctor that went for five years with a motorcycle back and forth. I remember the motorcycle when he had initially purchased it, it was red. So he had painted it like camouflage. Uh, so that he wouldn't be t- detected by the airplanes, the Russian uh, MiGs and the helicopters and all that. Uh, so basically, uh, he came a few times to America. He was invited. He gave, pres- he gave, uh, you know, he met with uh, State Department officials, CIA officials, uh, Congress, and he basically uh, knew what was going on and uh, exactly what what was at stake back then and what uh, America's interests were and what, w- why it was uh, very important for America to, to have the right strategy for Afghanistan. So basically, I remember, you know, after the fact, you know, in the recent years when he was t- telling us about these stories where he basically, I said, I just, I, I just bluntly asked uh, American officials, I said, uh, what is your strategy? What is your long-term strategy for Afghanistan? Uh, the American official bluntly lo- looked at him in the eyes and said, we don't have a long-term strategy for Afghanistan. We don't care. We don't, we, we, we don't care about the long-term strategy. Our strategy, we have one strategy. We, we want to, uh, defeat the, the Soviets by this war in Afghanistan at any and all costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, uh, that's, that's our goal. And that's what our mission is to defeat the Soviets. And then, but my dad told them that, okay, well, you need to have a long-term strategy because if you want to do it by these guys, the Mujahideen, they're not going to just stop at the Soviets. Then uh, one day they're going to come and bite you guys in the back. Um, and that, that's what happens. At the basic level, the Mujahideen are essentially, it's, it's a blanket term for a variety of different groups that were fighting the Soviets with varying degree, with varying political ideologies, various religious ideologies, but I believe Islam runs through all of them. And at the time, in the early 80s, when your dad is testifying, there is no Taliban yet. The United States is backing the Mujahideen to varying degrees to try and get the Soviets out. But we're not talking about the Taliban at all. No, we haven't even gotten to the Taliban. The Taliban was actually a reaction to what the Mujahideen ended up doing after they were they defeated the Soviets. So when the Soviets were defeated... Then the Mujahideen were the victors, right? Uh, and then they they left behind after they withdrew their forces from Afghanistan in the late 80s. They still uh, left behind a puppet government <clears throat> that was led by uh, this gentleman. His name was Najibullah. And he uh, did his best, just like Ashraf Ghani did, his best in order to try to reconcile uh, the differences and to try to become, to have a peaceful uh, re- reconciliation. And, uh, he was in power for three years. He was supported still by the then Soviets. Uh, but then the Soviets obviously start, you know, they, c- cutting down their support and uh, they, they stopped their support. And then the, 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 his, uh, government, uh, basically fell to the Mujahideen. And then the Mujahideen entered Afghanistan in 1992, uh, where they, uh, weren't very good allies with each other. There were seven main parties. And all of them were very extre- big extremists, including the Northern Alliance, the ones that were in power until now. Extremists in what way? 
you know, in extremists in their own fundamental uh, Islamic interpretations, you know, mm. uh, religiously extremist, uh, ethnically divided, you know, they, uh, most of them were based on their uh, ethnic divisions and ethnic uh, identities and things like that uh, at, at down the et- ethnic line. So then they uh, uh, started fighting against each other in Kabul and they ended up destroying Kabul. Uh, and uh, millions, hundreds of thousands of people were innocent. The civilians of Kabul were killed. So that's why the Taliban started. Uh, uh, you know, they were students in the madrasa. Then, so all of most of the all, all the Taliban are were born into war, and uh, they uh, most of them were in the madrasas of Kandahar and, and uh, in Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, and uh, they were uh, religiously educated, very disciplined. And uh, they uh, rose to power because uh, they uh, had a lot of support from uh, uh, their communities. And they're just like they started having support. You know, obviously, they've always had support within their constituents Mm -hmm. throughout Afghanistan, because mainly, you know, as you can see, what distinguishes them from the other ones, the Mujahideen, is that we don't see mass levels of uh, rape and uh, retaliation and killing and all of those things. So there's there's a little bit of di- distinction there. They can wrap them. They can wrap themselves in in what they say in conservative values and pure religion. That's how they that's how they place themselves and say we're different than the mujahideen who are not pure with their religion and who are who have just destroyed Kabul and who they speak about Islamic values but they don't do it. Look at us. We are the true believers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly it. And uh, that's what it basically boils down to is that uh, that's what we're witnessing right now, too, that there's a clash right now between the, the in between in the, in the Taliban right now is that, you know, they, uh, uh, they, they don't want to alienate their main sub, uh, supporters or their base uh, where they, uh, you know, completely freely allow, for example, women. Uh, to do, you know, to work in the government and to not really crack down on women. But because unfortunately, that's what the reality in Afghanistan is, is that uh, women's rights is one thing, a a very contentious issue in Afghanistan, unfortunately. It shouldn't be, but it is. This is just fascinating to me. I've been wondering this myself. You know, countries are much more complicated than we know in the United States. I mean, even ISIS has a base in Iraq and in Syria. Why do the Taliban continue to have a base after 20 years of war, really 40 years of war, and where they are clearly not a democratic entity? How is it that they retain such a strong base after 20 years? What is it about Ghani and Abdullah Abdullah and before him, President Kazi? Why is it that they don't seem to have a base, but the Taliban retains the space after 20 years of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. Well, uh, you know, um, it goes back to a lot of the strategic decisions that were made on the American side. If you can remember, the Taliban were pretty much driven out and they were on the uh, verge of defeat, uh, where they were uh, actually uh, willing to come back and uh, surrender, basically you know, uh, in return for having a role in the government back then in the early stages. And then uh, Rumsfeld and uh, his cronies, they pretty much uh, turned them down. And then we, they started uh, this big campaign, uh, which basically was, you know, at the very end, the roots of what went wrong all 
go to the corporate interests. Uh, you know, the, we we had no business of staying in Afghanistan after the mission was quote unquote uh, accomplished uh, back then. Uh, we uh, basically, uh, you know, turned it into a a, a profit machine. You know, but I, I'll, I'll push back just a little bit on that, and I, I can. Much ink has been spilt about all the wrong things that the United States did in Afghanistan, and how the United States failed to build build a country that was viable, and how corruption ran rampant. But I still don't quite understand how the Taliban retains this base of popular support. People who are willing to support them and to die for them and to choose them over, I mean, you said it yourself at the beginning that Ghani was trying to piece together, create a country to allow these competing interests to build something. Why is it that the only entity in Afghanistan, and again, I'm no expert, why is it that the only entity that seems to have a true base of support is the Taliban? Uh, yeah, again, it's, it's, uh, we, uh, we, we have to acknowledge that Afghanistan is a tribal country. Uh, it has always been a tribal country. It has always resisted a central form of government. Uh, so it has been very difficult to, to, to bring a central government in Afghanistan to, that is able to have a grip on all of the uh, regions there. Uh, and as far as, uh, you know, uh, why it's not possible to have foreign forces in, in, in Afghanistan and to impose some form of government in Afghanistan. There's always going to be that resistance. There's always going to be that reason and that motivation for the disenchanted members of the population to go and realize the, all the inequalities and then blame it all on this foreign force that is here. And also it's religious. The Taliban, for example, are able to have a very loyal force that is willing to fight to the end and uh, without any hesitation, without even any kind of salaries uh, in order to get what is promised to them, which is uh, to become martyrs. And the reward to a martyr is very clear, 100% convinced and they believe that they will get that reward, which is that 72 virgins and also they're able to uh, forgive uh, 7,000 sinners and save them uh, and they get all of their own sins forgiven. So that's a big return that they get as opposed to an Afghan soldier who's, who's fighting for a corrupt and weak government, which was the Afghan government, uh, where they were not even getting their salaries for months and where they were not even getting their rations, they were going hungry, uh, all the money that was coming from foreign aid, all of that was getting looted. So all of this coupled with uh, all the violence that was coming to Afghans, ironically, by the mainly by the Taliban, they uh, are happy to have that kind of a compromise. Uh, well, they're not really because in what we're experiencing right now, because the alienation brings with it uh, complete economic devastation, uh, a, a major humanitarian crisis that is looming right now, uh, the horizon in Afghanistan, unfortunately, and all of these other atrocities that come along with being alienated and being subjected to a very authoritarian uh, 
uh, rule. So, um, so this is all a compromise, and and we also have to understand that Afghans generally are very tired. Uh, they're very tired of fighting. They're very hungry. They're very exhausted mentally and physically, and you can imagine. So, it's a whole combination of all of those things. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak about all of that. That wasn't on my outline so much, and I really appreciate it. And it's very interesting to me. I'd like to turn a bit now to your personal journey to America. What year do you come to America? How do you come here? What and how old are you? And why do you and your family come to America at that time? Yeah, like I said, uh, I came here like in nineteen eighty four. I, I uh, one of the things we struggle always as attorneys is that when we ask our clients, well, when did you first come to America? <laughs> they're like, they start scratching their heads and they're like, you know, moving around in their chairs and they're starting to get uncomfortable. Like here, here come the questions that I'm not prepared for. <laughs> so yeah, nobody knows when they came, but I, I know I didn't, and our flight was uh, November 28th, 1984. And uh, that was when uh, we received the letter in the mailbox in Peshawar, Pakistan of a friend. So my dad, uh, when we were in Kabul in 1984, uh, just immediately after he had returned from America, when he had uh, confronted the U.S. officials about what the long-term strategies of Afghanistan and everything is, and the F- I didn't finish my story. I guess this is a good way segue for me to go finish that story. Is that so? Basically, my uh, dad was trying to convince the U.S. government to uh, focus its aid to the other group that had formed in Afghanistan, the resistance group, who did not really belong to all these religious extremists that made up of the seven groups that were also supported by Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and all these other countries that had their own agendas as far as what kind of Afghanistan they wanted. Uh, So he wanted to, uh, he was uh, lobbying for America to support the religion, the national figures of Afghanistan who made up also of the former officials and the former governments, uh, intellectuals, university uh, professors, and all these other non-religious figures that had formed back then that were also based in Peshawar. Um, so they had chosen my dad to be, to, to become basically lobby on their behalf in order to, to divert the U.S. aid through them and not through the ISI and Pakistan and all of that that we witnessed later. So then, and at the same meeting uh, was sitting a Pakistani ISI agent who basically was the counterpart uh, to uh, my dad, who told this uh, group of people that, no, I disagree. These people that Dr. Qazi Alam is advocating for, they have always compromised in the past and they will compromise with the Russians and with the Soviets and that ultimately they will look out for the national interest of Afghanistan and then uh, not uh, really uh, serve the national interest of the United States, which is to defeat the Soviets. And the only group of people that are guaranteed to defeat the Soviets uh, are these uh, Mujahideen, because they deem it as a jihad. And through jihad, they're ready to fight 
And so ISI, that's kind of like the Pakistani CIA, right? Yes. They're still quite active in Pakistan and in Afghan affairs. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, uh, alleged that they they are behind the Taliban and they're always helping the Taliban. And with their assistance, they were able to conquer Afghanistan in such a short period after the U.S. forces left. So this uh, Pakistani agent... Uh, can convince the U.S. officials to make that very fateful decision in order to direct all of its support through these uh, seven groups. So basically, when I, my dad went back, and then he was, uh, for a second time, he be, had become the target of an assassination attempt uh, where they tried to run him over with his motorcycle. A car came and they tried to run him over to uh, on, on a, over a creek. And my, miraculously, my dad survived that. Uh, attempt at his life. And at that point, he knew that his life was in danger. So he went and made an application for refugee status. And within six months, our case was approved. And uh, when uh, he had uh, gotten the initial news that he, he could bring his family over, so he had, uh, uh, he sent some guides in order to bring the rest of his family from Afghanistan to Pakistan. So we engaged in a, it was about a 10-day trek from our village in Afghanistan to walk with the help of some mules to carry our belongings, uh, to walk over the mountains and over the passes in the nighttime to evade the Soviet forces and to go through the front lines of the Mujahideen and then make it over to the border of Af Af Afghanistan and Pakistan. Late spring, early summer of 1984, uh, we were able to go to Pakistan, my mom and my siblings, uh, and join my, our dad in Pakistan, where uh, he was waiting for us. And then we ended up living in Peshawar, Pakistan for about six months. And then until we got our final boarding documents to go to Islamabad, obviously, we went for a couple of interviews at the to the uh, US embassy in Islamabad. I never forget, I was 13 years old. Uh, I remember when we walked into that big hallway of a work area where there was a lot of cubicles and a lot of these American employees, they all were all looking at us because there were uh, six kids, uh, including my parents. And then uh, I remember when they, we were walking, they were counting all of us They're like one, two, you know, like, okay, <laughs> wow, this is a pretty big family here. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, I, I never remember, forget that, that interview. And uh, obviously my, my dad was an excellent English speaker already and he was able to communicate very well in that interview. And then next thing you know, we were on a plane from Islamabad to America and we landed in New York, but then uh, we went on to Philadelphia where a gentleman was waiting for us in the airport and uh, he had a station wagon and we sat in the station wagon and he took us to a, a neighborhood in the North Philadelphia area where he had already rented us a house. It was in the right after the Thanksgiving weekend, I remember. And uh, I, he had already put, you know, the broad furniture like mattresses and blankets and God bless him. He worked for ch Catholic charities. Uh, and uh, then the next morning he came and took us in the subway well, took us to the downtown Philadelphia to finish our paperwork. You know, that, that's yeah. where all, it all began in America, <laughs> our American journey. So, Bashir, your dad, the, the attempt on his life, did that happen in Pakistan or Afghanistan? Oh, uh, the, the kidnapping happened in Afghanistan. With the riot, riding him off the road. Th yeah, that was in Pakistan. So right. that was very serious. 
as an as an immigration attorney who does asylum cases just like you, I, I, I can't help but let this pass. Your father and you and your family are refugees from Afghanistan with a father who lived in Pakistan, who had an attempt on his life done in Pakistan, and who was in part fleeing ISI agents in Pakistan and Mujahideen supported by the United States, but who are brought to the United States because their lives are in danger in an allied country in Pakistan. But technically, they are refugees from Afghanistan. Is that about right? That's correct. Yeah, we, we, we didn't, we, our, our asylum claim was not based on persecution by the communist regime in Afghanistan or by the Soviets. Our asylum case was based on a persecution by the Mujahideen and the, and the Pakistani government. You, you, you're essentially refugees from U.S. allies in uh, part. That's, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can call it that. Exactly. Yes. We have well, all the details of our case, but our fear was also, I'm sure, based on the my my father's opposition to the government also of course he's in he's in washington testifying against the exactly. communist government it's just yeah. that just shows you the sometimes there is a natural tendency as lawyers and of judges and i get it really to simplify these asylum claims sometimes but some things can't be simplified in human right. nature correct yes that's why asylum i mean it's just takes so much development you know the facts need to be to be developed the background and it's very uh, detailed, you know, it's, it's a very specialized area. Can't be done in a two and a half hour individual, huh? Oh, no, no. Yeah, no way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so what, what did it mean to have that individual from Catholic Charities? You're 13 years old. You just came from Afghanistan. What was that like to come to a foreign country and then to have somebody here to actually make sure everything went perfect? I mean, that's so indispensable, I mean, for everybody, you know, in my life, I think, you know, because you see, uh, you know, the first glimpse of America you see is the humanity, you know, that is connected with it. And uh, so it it, it kind of is very eye opening. Uh, Obviously, uh, as a refugee, you also as a foreigner, you come with a lot of your own prejudices, for example. A lot of the immigrant community that we met, the Afghan new immigrants, you know, they they were very suspicious and they were always warning us that, okay, uh, don't, don't allow uh, this group of people to your house or don't accept their invitations because they're Christians and they're trying to convert you to Christianity. So, you know, if there's a, there's a suspicion, you know, in, in the community that you have to kind of f- fight against, uh, you know, I, I give all the credit to, to my father who really had a very open mind uh, with everybody and, he always accepted the invitations and, you know, took us to church events uh, where we, we uh, were able to go get exposed to, for example, a nice church and go see a rehearsal or uh, of, of a piano, of, go, go to a function, a musical or something like that, be able to sing with them and all of that. And it, it was just kind of a reinforcement that, you know, uh, you don't necessarily have to be so secluded in a society where you're so... You you have to be able to have the, the the level of confidence in order to grow when you come to America because you know all of those experiences you know there were there were character building uh, we were able to meet some really good humanitarians and get exposed to them obviously you know uh, when you're a new refugee you also get exposed to the dark side 
uh, of America too. You get to get exposed to what's going on on the streets, uh, to the bully uh, environment, to the bullies and certain types of cultures out there, uh, drugs, uh, alcohol, uh, uh, violence, all of these uh, influences that are part of the uh, American society. But ob- obviously, uh, you know, I remember <laughs> when when we were in the airport, my dad sat all, all of us da- down and he told us that before we get out of this airport, I have to give you this lecture. And hopefully this is going to be my final lecture that I give you guys. So he told us that uh, in America, there's only two sides. There's nothing in the middle. It's either you can turn America into a heaven for yourself or you can turn it into hell. There is no middle ground. And in order for you to turn it into heaven, you have to go to school, you have to be, uh, pursue education in this country. If you don't pursue education, then you're always going to be, your life is not going to be as uh, rosy. So that's kind of, that That was always kind of sticking in the back of my mind from the get-go, the way I approached and my life uh, and my career in America. It's a good point. I mean, most people don't know refugees, but refugees by definition are people who have either that usually have experienced a horrible trauma and horrible conditions or by definition have a well-founded fear of it. And there's this kind of idea that they should be these people who just are so grateful for everything and they should come to America and everything should be rosy and they should integrate quickly. But of course, refugees have their own prejudices. Refugees have a hard time. Refugees are suspicious of everybody. And those first few days, weeks, months, of integration, I guess I'm hearing are, are key. Yeah, and, and and this takes us to what's going on now. So you know, um, that's why I don't really walk away from any opportunities in order to help any new immigrants uh, because I know the treatment that I received and how how long it went. Those key influences uh, and those uh, gestures of humanity. Uh, that I experienced is uh, uh, priceless. Uh, so that's why it's uh, very important for us, even though we're right now going through a period, uh, I would call it kind of a dark period in, uh, in America, in a, in a very uh, anti-immigrant environment, uh, unfortunately. Obviously, we have a majority of Americans who are very compassionate, uh, and we don't want to kind of brush that aside because I, I, the humanity still exists in this country. But at the same time, I think that there's so much division and uh, immigration has become such a divisive issue in this country. So under even under this environment, I think it goes a long way to make sure that uh, we are able to supplement all the other organized efforts that are going out there, such as, uh, you know, all these resettlement agencies or overworked or overburdened and i think that every person that volunteers and um, decides to go uh, and follow some kind of a group who's out there active trying to feed a hungry new refugee family or trying to get some much needed clothing to them or some kind of a very much needed hot meal for them right away i think that really goes a long way because even if uh, a new immigrant uh, spends one night or two nights of their uh, new life in America, hungry, especially their kids, I don't think that's really going to, that's really the American way. And we should, should not really have to let that happen. I'm going to have links to this in the show notes, and I want to end with that. But I personally, and I think for a lot of people listening, I'm just curious, I mean, Bashir, 
one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show the most is because you actually have clients in Afghanistan and you have clients that recently came from Afghanistan. You know, putting aside what we can read on the news and the military situation, the political situation, what is going on in Afghanistan right now for your clients? Uh, well, um, yeah, it, it's uh, it's not a very pretty picture right now as far as what's going on. I mean, um, yeah, there were opportunities after opportunities to try to save or evacuate or avoid putting our very key allies in the situation, especially those uh, group of people that have a pathway of immigration in the United States or had a pathway of immigration. They were made promises. Uh, they meet all the qualifications, but despite all the efforts that they have made, they are still stuck in Afghanistan. And all of this being stuck in Afghanistan didn't really happen overnight. You know, this has been going on for years and years. And uh, having uh, practiced as a, an Afghan-American attorney, obviously, I have a very keen and intricate past with uh, consular processing and all the issues relating to issuance of visas to, for example, special immigrant visa uh, applicants. You know, for those of us uh, that don't know who that is, is that that is for um, visas, special visas that have been allocated for allies that have uh, provided faithful and valuable service to the United States uh, cause. It, it's a very expansive uh, group of people that it could include. So those uh, people uh, have been trying to immigrate to the U.S. for many, many years, and a lot of them have uh, really been in stuck in all kinds of backlogs, security backlogs. There we had the quote-unquote blacklisted interpreters, the terminated interpreters, and that interpreters that have really been treated very illegally by their past employers. And as a result of that, they have you know the, all these obstacles to overcome in order to bypass all of these stringent visa requirements and backlogs. So, yeah, the, the problems go back uh, more, more for years and years. Uh, and uh, But unfortunately, you know, having a well-founded fear of persecution in Afghanistan, we're, we're talking about tens of millions of people. Yeah. Uh, and just kind of trying to weed out uh, the cases that where, you know, they actually have some kind of a practicable chance of getting some kind of a way out of Afghanistan is a, a, a task in itself. So it's, it's, it's a pretty complicated situation right now. And uh, to be honest with you, there's really nothing new. All, all the roads have been blocked, either intentionally or unintentionally by our own actions. So it goes back to the Doha agreement. It goes back to the sudden fall of the Afghan government. It back, goes back to moving the deadlines around it goes back to uh, evacuating uh, or prematurely leaving certain strategic bases and it goes back to basically tying uh, our own hands behind our backs and really keeping absolutely no negotiating power over the taliban so this is the situation we're kind of dealing with right now and uh, there's a lot of hype and there's a lot of rumors out there there's a lot of a hoopla out there and there's a lot of uh, people that think that okay they've heard about this new thing called the humanitarian parole i want to apply for it myself because i think I, somebody told me that it's going to expire in two weeks and then 
you get bombarded with hundreds of, and thousands of calls because somebody told, you know, doesn't understand exactly what humanitarian parole is, <laughs> how long it's already been in existence uh, in our statutes for all these years, and how a rush and all of the clog up in the airport happened. Uh, all of the, uh, all of that, unfortunately, is self-made. Uh, we created all of that by our own actions and misactions and inactions. Uh, so we can talk about the details of all that, but it's really frustrating that right now, uh, in uh, even if you have a humanitarian parole, uh, it's not your really uh, and your ticket out of Afghanistan. There's a lot of other hurdles that you have to overcome in order to actually make it to the United States by way of uh, advanced humanitarian parole, which is really the the last option. And it really kind of developed into this because unfortunately the U.S. authorities, just because they didn't want to deal with anybody, any new things, they didn't want to come up with any new solutions, any other ways in order to evacuate people who are in imminent harm of being hunted out and killed by the Taliban in any quicker way than to direct everybody to send this packet over to this block box uh, in somewhere in Dallas, Texas, and expect to be evacuated anytime soon. Ain't happening. Without getting into the specifics of humanitarian parole, I mean, there is no UN entity in Afghanistan doing refugee adjudication and then plucking Afghan individuals out, right? And so... I guess, are we still doing flights? I mean, even if you have a document, you're processing in where, Islamabad? You have to get yourself out of Afghanistan before you can even fly to America if you even have a legal pathway? Yeah, and uh, it's not even guaranteed that the Pakistan post is going to accept to consular process, further consular process, whether it's your humanitarian parole application or whether it's an approved I-130 application. So basically people are just stuck. There's no embassy in Afghanistan. There's no post. There's no consular post. So even if you have an approved petition and you have a complete, your case is documentarily complete at the National Visa Center, then you should be scheduled for uh, an interview. You're SOL uh, and uh, people still have this misconception that they need to continue the consular processing. Uh, the last communication that I got and any of my clients that I know of got that got from the U.S. Embassy Kabul, uh, which abruptly closed down in early August, was something in late August saying that we're, uh, we appreciate something to the effect of we appreciate your patience. We, we want to let you know that we're in continued efforts uh, in order to open up our uh, activities or operations in Doha, Qatar, and that if you want your case transferred to Doha, Qatar, or any other embassy, any other post of your choosing, please uh, contact the National Visa Center portal. So they give a link to the portal of where it's an it's a inquiry portal, the general inquiry portal for the National Visa Center. So they give you that link. And then when you do that, it's really useless uh, because they don't know what to do with your case in the first place. And then they kind of have their own thing and they kind of redirect you to somewhere else and then this and that. But geographically, we're still talking really, it seems to me, like you and your family in 1984, getting across Afghanistan to get into Pakistan somehow, even if you can get that foil or even if you can get that refugee document to then get flown over to America. And if you can't, 
make that trek, you're stuck. Correct. And then obviously Pakistan is a very corrupt country itself. And Afghans have historically been harassed by Pakistani officials for bribes and all kinds of things. So, so it's, it's not easy. You're not going to Iran. Yeah. So basically they're on, they're on their own. Everybody is pretty much on their own uh, in order to figure out how to make it out of there and so yeah so unfortunately this is where we're at allegedly there are some talks between the u.s government and the taliban and you know now we don't want to recognize them and they want to be recognized and then allegedly their monies are frozen and they want the monies to be unfrozen and there's not absolutely no negotiating power for the united states it's very depressing, Bashir. I'm very sorry to hear that. I was kind of having this interview to hope that you were going to give me a silver bullet that was going to say that actually there is a way for these individuals to get out of Afghanistan right now, but it um, doesn't seem to be the case. But there are thousands of Afghan citizens who recently came to the United States who are here. The lucky few who did get humanitarian parole or individuals who did get special visas. What can be done right now for these individuals if you're an immigration attorney or if you're not an attorney at all? And what are some organizations that can help? Yeah, these people, they're not entitled to all the, at at least until December, uh, there was the House Bill uh, 5104 that was passed recently. And that brings some good news to this group of people where they will be treated and provided the same kind of benefits that refugees receive. So until then, uh, these folks are uh, not eligible for a lot of the services. So they need a lot of help. And a, a lot of them, they are paroled here, but they don't really have any long-term asylum case, uh, for example. So they need asylum attorneys. Uh, they have, they need to file affirmative asylum applications or they need to file uh, adjustment applications. They may Perhaps they already have an I-130 petition, but they were paroled in. So they still need to do, finish their I-485s. We, the limited amount of people that America was able to bring, they really need a lot of help. Uh, there's a lot of events. A lot of them live in, like if you live in San Diego area, they live in El Cajon and you can sponsor uh, those families. And that's what we do. I mean, we, we try to put people into contact with the right people and to try to, you know, uh, utilize all of this, uh, basically transform the sentiment, that, that the positive sentiment that everybody is showing into action. And so for non-attorneys, what are some of the organizations that you would recommend people donate to? Yeah, uh, so uh, basically there are the national organizations. Um, there, there's a, a lot of organizations that are helping uh, Afghans. Uh, I, I, I don't really want to start naming them, but uh, lo- locally, um, I, I would mention uh, the, the ones that I'm kind of working together with is Council on American Islamic Relations, the San Diego chapter, uh, Islamic Community of San Diego. Also, they're very intricately involved in the Afghanistan uh, issues now. Uh, there's a very private individual groups. There's a Myri's List is a very famous. They're very active on Facebook, and they have held that. If you look at their page, it's amazing. All these volunteers are going out there and furnishing the apartments of the newcomers mm-hmm. and all of that. And then, um, so there's a whole bunch of organizations. I, 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 I'm kind of, you know, I, I just try to do what I do, and I'm not really involved officially with anybody. 
but uh, I, I, when I see an organization that is really out there helping, I make sure to name them. You know, sponsorship uh, goes also, uh, you can not spend a penny and really not jeopardize yourself at all uh, into any kind of a liability or uh, legal commitment or anything by just simply uh, being a, uh, a humanitarian parole uh, application sponsor. Uh, a lot of the families are suffering. They have a, lo- a lot of family members in Afghanistan that they are trying to apply for humanitarian for- parole for. Uh, but they themselves are, uh, don't earn enough money or they have sponsored other, pe- other people in order to qualify for sponsors. So they intricately need sponsors. If you're a member or if you have some kind of a nonprofit organization, uh, you can have organization sponsors. So basically it's a promissory note saying that we will make sure to provide uh, any kind of assistance in the event they need it. And when people are ultimately admitted for or paroled, then uh, specifically after December of this year, they get all the rights and public benefits and are entitlement to all those public benefits that the refugees get, including housing and all that. So this I-134, to be honest with you, should not even be needed for Afghans. And it's a, it's a kind of a dis- discouraging type of a, a tool where uh, a lot of Afghans, they have all these applications ready to be filed, but they don't really have that sponsor to, to sign, yeah. sign off on their behalf. And it's this formality that really has no practicable purposes or anything like that. So, so basically, yeah, there's nothing really going on for Afghans. Uh, uh, there's the P1, P2, for example, the pr- priority one, priority two, and priority three refugee status. Uh, a lot of the Afghans were referred to that, and a lot of them are getting approval notices, or not approval, but so, so, like they will get an e- email saying that, okay, we have a, we have uh, done the preliminary review of your referral. Now you can go uh, to a third country and apply for refugee status now with this letter to a third country and wait in line over there. If you can get out of Afghanistan. If you can get out of Afghanistan. So it's just the same thing as going, you know, doing the refugee route. But apparently you're already pre-selected for a refugee status in Afghanistan. So that if you have that pending and then this IV, that's basically it. And obviously we saw what happened during evacuations. They there they you know they just sent everybody who applied for evacuation was sent a document entitled a visa from the u s embassy uh, without any case name or case number it's just like a like a certificate like a made up thing called a visa so they could go to the airport and everybody got one of those that's what actually was responsible for all the airport rush Bashir, I think we could talk for hours about this, but I think we do need to end this. Oh, yeah, it's already, oh, my God, two hours. I'm going to edit it down. Don't you worry. I I appreciate you taking the time. You're a very busy man these days. I'm sure you always have been. I look forward to meeting you in person one day. Thank you for taking the time to speak to me, to teach me about a lot of these issues. Sounds good, Kevin. It was nice talking to you. Uh, Looking forward to speaking to you again sometime. Thanks, Bashir. So there you have it. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.